You can hear me now. There we go. Now I can hear you. <laughs> yes. Navigate, Kevin. Navigate. There we go. Yes, I, 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 uh, it's amazing what you can get in a stocking run. Come on. <laughs> it's amazing what you can get in their whole universe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, greetings. Who, who, who else is here on? It's just yourself, Blue Scabby, Carl, and Joe. Can, can you see me, Kevin? I always wonder what kind of glue it was. What kind of glue is that, Carl? Well, the kind of glue that bonds a broken soul. Uh-huh. It's it's uh it's mostly for scabs, like glue scabby, uh so it's like so it's essentially platelets, consistency platelets. It acts like that. In the <laughs> okay, there you go, Kevin. It's great to see you, man. There you are, man. I I see half of you. I didn't know when did you grow that microphone? It's lovely, <laughs> lovely, lovely, man. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. I see on Facebook here and there and there and here and over there and yeah, and stateside now. So feeling like we're we're all in the same part of the world. So it's mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not just passing. I've been tracking. I've been tracking you. I've been tracking you. Yeah. For for Carl now, the Dollar Tree is part of his vernacular. Yeah. You ever heard of the Dollar Tree? Heard of what? The dollar, the Dollar Tree, Dollar General. Um, different kinds of those things. Well, that was your part-time job was making all that stuff in China and sending <laughs> it over here, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you are. Good to see your smiling faces. Good to see yours. I will kick this thing off. Uh, this is the Originative Podcast. From time to time, we are lucky enough to have special guests on the cast. And this week, we have the famous, sometimes infamous, Urshanabi, a.k.a. Kevin Smith, the uh, local legendary jazz drummer of Denver. Wow. Very excited to have this gentleman chat with us and share his perspective and wisdom and antics uh because he has he has lived probably several several lifetimes in one by by this point welcome kevin it's an honor to be here honor to be here (laughs) honor to be here i'm trying to think of it it was 1999 or 2000 when when we met is that correct 99 is correct when i moved up to uh idaho springs that's right Oh yeah, at the coffee shop, right? Mm-hmm. That you were running, Ron. Yes, you- I was trying to hold on to uh, some ounce of my irresponsible youth <laughs> by contributing to my household by getting a job at a coffee shop. <laughs> Cava, Ro- Cava Roasters of Idaho Springs. Yes. Wow. So Java Mountain Roasters. Java Mountain Roasters, Java yeah. Mountain Java, got so it. So for for our listeners, uh, me included, that that are unfamiliar with maybe the the geography of Denver versus Idaho Springs, like I definitely know that you had kind of tried to move out to Idaho Springs, but how far is that? And what were your reasons, Ron? And 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 then Kevin, like what what were you doing out there? 
Yeah, Jill and I were living down in the heart of the city at Colfax and Josephine Street, um, right over by by East High School. We were renting in our, our apartment, and we moved in with a friend of mine who was the trumpet player for the Nightmare Fighters, the ska band that I was in. And basically, I wanted to own property because I was like, this rental thing's not going to work out for me in my life. And so I wanted to jump into owning property as soon as possible. So we worked out this deal with Mike where his dad bought the property, bought the house in Idaho Springs, and he made it an assumable loan. And we were not on the title, but we were, but the idea was that we would be able to take it over at some point in time in the future. But when we got into it, interest rates were like, 8% or something like that. And three years later, four years later, when we moved, interest rates had come down to like five. And so we ended up buying down in, um, in Denver because you could get way more house than, uh, than, than that was worth than assuming the loan. So we decided to uh, do a different, to go a different path, but Idaho Springs is about, I think 18 miles from Denver to the West in, in the foothills, just at the base of where I think, you would say the foothills turn into the mountains. That's how I would describe it. I wanted a local job because I didn't want to drive anywhere. And and I didn't want to wait tables and work at a bar. Uh, the coffee shop was hiring and the coffee shop was for sale. They're trying to sell this coffee shop for $185,000. And I was like, oh, I would like to buy that coffee shop. That was ill-conceived for, for many reasons, but it was a fun job while I had it. <laughs> So that's how I ended up there. Kevin's story is wholly different. Yeah, well, I found this guy named Ron Green sitting there reading esoteric books on uh, history and many things. And and I said, at least I have somebody to talk to up here in this funny little town in the mountains. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's where that began. Were, were you living in that area or what? I lived on the, uh, right outside of Idaho Springs, and it was uh, then called St. Mary's Glacier. They took the glacier away because of global warming. There is no more glacier. So, Carl and Glow have hiked St. Mary's Glacier. Okay. Oh, come on. I saw yep. some of that glacier. Well, there wasn't much there. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Just a little piece that faces north. It's like a nice piece where the sun shines, right? Right. St. Mary's Icicle. (laughs) Thank you. But Kevin used to work at the casinos there. And so he'd he'd come by the coffee shop and order his his, uh, double espresso before he'd head over the mountain. Uh, to the other side to, where he where he uh, played drums at the casino. If oh, I wow. remember correct, I, I, I think that's that's what you were doing. Well, I was a dealer and they, they found out I played music. So they said, we'd rather you play music because you're not a very good dealer. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> As a dealer, and, you make uh, a great drummer. <laughs> I Thank you. I moved up there with... Uh, and rented for, oh, I don't know, what was it, a year or two. And then my wife and I bought it at the time. And then uh, 
when the divorce came, she took it back. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting story. And uh, now a Buddhist lives there. Kevin had this kick-ass geodesic dome house. It was awesome. Oh, really? Yeah. It was very small. A one-bedroom and a, a amazing fireplace, which was needed because it did get cold. And it was in the bottom of the part of the canyon. So you saw the sun come up at uh, 10, 30, 11 in the morning. You'd see it go down 2 or 2.30 in the afternoon. It was oh. a very short sunny day wow <laughs> how long were you up in the idaho falls area kevin uh, idaho springs up st mary's glacier for eight not eight years uh-huh. and then uh, everything changed and i moved back to denver and moved to lakewood and uh, had to take care of my chose to take care of my father for the next six years as he went through his up to the time of his transition moving on so and now i live in lovely uh downtown denver and uh not right in proper downtown south denver and uh, been here for six years now time flies so kevin when you um when you transition from dealer to drummer being already a drummer uh was that like a first time full-time gig as a drummer when um well from what i understood you were at the casino deal as a dealer and then they said no No, that was a joke that was a joke humor humor (laughs) humor (laughs) okay Um, i felt okay a quick a quick history um, I came from a musical family. Um, my father owned and operated, the band actually owned and operated their own nightclub from 1949 to 1977. My father came out of vaudeville. He was a big band drummer. He went to CU, had a business degree from CU, but uh, fell into the Taylor Supper Club. And this was one of those right time at the right situation, right? All things lined up. And Taylor's became one of the greatest Colorado success stories in the entertainment industry for Colorado. They worked six nights a week. They did three shows a night, long history. So I grew up, my mother had been a singer with churches and many other things. And, uh, brilliant woman so i just grew up right into right into music and i was on stage at five the first time right and uh i played a big giant red guitar i came out and uh, did comedy with uh with my father and and did a bunch of shtick what they called shtick you got to be old enough to understand what shtick means but uh, shtick was shtick comedy was family entertainment, musical. My father was also a singer, a dancer, a tap dancer, a comedian. The Taylors was the name of the group. And my father was kind of, for those who know, like a Tommy Smothers. 
or a Jerry Lewis in uh, the band, for those who know that history. So, yeah, I was talking to Jill the other day, and I was I was trying to describe um, your father's endeavor. And I was like, I think it's kind of like the Smothers Brothers, and she's like, who? <laughs> like, you know, right. it's like it's like comedy and music, but it's like all it's like there's no point at which one is not the other like right like it's all so interwoven that it's it's part of it's part of the entire show um correct and i was trying to think of an example like a like a contemporary example of this and i and and i was having a hard time and and it's like this genre of entertainment doesn't really exist anymore you know, maybe like Saturday Night Live characters that can also incorporate a, a, an instrument and, and incorporate music in some way. But even that's not really, it's not the same thing. When I looked at, at the YouTube videos of your dad and the comedy routines, it's like, it's much more of like the, um, who's the, the guy from the, from the 50s? Jack Benny. Yes in the same in the same vein as like yeah you know it's yeah it's stand up but it's like cut so many, there's so many other things going on that it's, that it's it's an entire world in and of itself right yeah it's an era that went by and it's kind of tucked away it still exists and uh must be continually remembered into life so to speak so so not only not only a comedian and musician and performer, but also an entrepreneur business owner, right? Yes, yes, he was. That's a whole other level of the thing because, yeah, I don't know. Business is tricky at times, and you've got to go out and be the life of the show in the place where things are tricky. That you've got to pull out that soul. Um, from a much deeper well. Yes. They were also uh, national. Uh, they were on the shows that existed back on, uh, there was the Dinosaur Chevy show. There was the In Ernie Tennessee Ford show. Uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford was a great uh, storyteller, songwriter. Amazing man. Amazing man. And um, there is a video up of my father on uh, YouTube of uh, called Taylor's Supper Club, which was shot in 1963. Um, it says 64, but it was 63. And it's about a seven-minute video, and anyone can look it up and uh, and watch that. Yeah, definitely will. Yeah, we will link to that in our program notes. So. Uh, so people can go check it out. Fantastic. Yeah. Do you do you have siblings? Uh, I had a little brother, and he moved on. Uh, I was six, seven years old, and he passed when he oh. was three, little three, oh. three years old. So, no, I'm it. But even that, even that, you know, like when you talk about the comics um, and the live musicians in general right? The performers, the, the life of the night, um, you know, going through, you know, the tragedy, right? That must have ensued at that time for all of you. Like, 
and yet keeping everything going must have been really something. Um, a lot of dimensions went on during all those years. And uh, my uh, little brother was special needs and uh, had uh, Down syndrome. And back in the 50s, they decided back in that day and age, it was, it was better if you had someone that was handicapped, disabled, had Down syndrome, whatever, to put them in a home rather than let them exist with the family that they really belong to and uh, made it very rough. And my mother at the time, we would go over to visit my brother after they, they ripped him out of the home for me, which I didn't understand. And uh, we would go visit my little brother in a place at that time they put 50 kids in a room with one occasional caregiver to come in and check on them. And my mother saw that and I was just could not believe it. My mother went up against the governor and the mayor in Colorado and got things changed, got the administration at the time that was running in there. And my mother, within three months, became the president of what at that time was called Rich Home. Uh, she made a lot of great changes there. But uh, she was greatly overcome with grief after my brother passed. Mm -hmm. And uh, she got out of there. She, she couldn't handle it anymore. But she had to she had to come home and take care of her now. So Yeah. Well, simultaneously, my father's career had gone on the upswing. And um they ended up opening three nightclubs. They built three hotels uh in Denver. They uh brought a chain to Colorado called the, you know, Ramada Inns because back in those days, there wasn't such a thing here. So. Yeah. So some of the folks in the region native know, know this story well about how Kevin Smith introduced me to Martin Partel. And I remember the way that this happened was that Kevin brought in a, a cassette tape to the coffee shop and and he gave me the cassette tape he's like i think you, sh you should listen to this and i was like oh okay great 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 yeah and um whenever time kevin would come in he'd ask me if i if i listened to to the tape yet <laughs> and i was like no no i haven't listened to it yeah this happened like i don't know four or five six times who knows and every time it took, kevin, some work. <laughs> it took some it took some work <laughs> and uh and there was one time where I was so embarrassed that 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 I lied, and Kevin said, "You know, he got to the, you know, he's, oh, he's getting his coffee, and he's just like, did you did you listen to the tape?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah, it's great stuff." And he's just like, "Yeah, what do you think?" I was like, "Well, you know, I I I really liked it." And he's like, "Well, but but what do you think about what he was saying?" And and I didn't have anything to say, and he's like. You didn't really listen to it, did you? 
It's like, no, no, I didn't really listen to it. And after that, I, I listened to it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so that that was Kevin is is who introduced me to to Martine. Um, if that hadn't happened, I don't know that we would all be having this conversation here today. Wow. Yeah. The direction that my life took after I embraced uh, the the opportunity that Kevin was giving me. Later on, Kevin was uh, who I went to see Martine the first time with. So um, oh, wow. how does Kevin, how does a jazz drummer get introduced to and get into something like the work and legacy of Martine Pretel? Uh, from an early age, I was into spirituality and at the time with the events, I had been raised in a Methodist basic upbringing, at which time I was kind of introduced to uh, spirit guides. I would uh, I don't know how to explain that. Um, I remember being in the Methodist church when I was five, and uh, my mother and I would go every Sunday, and I always loved to sit by this window in the church, this church still exists in Lakewood. And uh, an angel of spirit came over to the window and said, you know that stuff that guy up on the dais is, is speaking and preaching to you? Don't believe it. Don't believe it, okay? This is, that's it. And poof, that uh, spirit, angel, whatever disappeared. And uh, I don't know, it wasn't long after that. My mother didn't want to go to the church, but she sent me off to Southern Bible Baptist study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I went uh, to the Southern Baptist Bible study and service every Sunday for a couple of years. And, uh, I was a rebel there. <laughs> and, um, always been a rebel, and I was I, a rebel there. I bet. <laughs> they didn't like me very much. Uh, I had a famous uh, um, encounter with the, his name was Reverend Dabney. He was from Mississippi, and he was the head preacher there. And he would pick us kids up and take us in the morning at 6.30, so we could go do Southern Bible Baptist study before the service. Uh -huh. <laughs> and he would drive us, and he said, uh, he questioned me um, immediately on, and he said, he says, Kevin, do you have any questions? And I said, yes, I do. I said, if we're all created equal, under God, in the name of God, so on and so forth to speak. Um, why is it I'm okay and my little brother didn't have the same experience? Hmm. And I said, I just don't think it's right. And he pulled the car over and stopped the car. And he said, I want you to know one thing. Don't you ever dare question the word of the Lord. Don't you ever. And he started pounding on my chest with his finger. Wow. And I said, holy, what? I said, I'm not questioning anything about any lords 
or anybody. I you asked me if I had a question, and I asked you about the equanimity because I didn't understand at that age that you know we come in many forms, many shapes, and uh, we arrive on this planet in many different calibrations. So, uh, how old were you at the time, Kevin? At that time, yeah. Um, I think I said five a minute ago. I think I was seven. Yeah. At that point. Man. So that began my spiritual quest, which eventually led to Martine and uh, many others. So without you giving a little more context, it's a little hard, at least for me to understand, like I'm hearing a nightclub family of musicians, you know, comics. Uh -huh. And yet uh -huh. there's this infiltration of you better go to Southern Baptist and you know, all that, like, how did those dynamics play off in the early days? Like, how was that even possible? I feel like nowadays people have like a little bit more of like a balance, but at least how I would envision, you know, 50s, 60s, it was like one or the other, or you're the nightclub or you're on church on Sunday and you, your family seemed to have both somehow. Well, I wasn't, I didn't work in the nightclub six days a week, of course, you know. Um, my father came out of World War II, got a, had his degree. Um, they bought a little house in Lakewood. And uh, that's when he stepped uh, also at the same time into Taylor's Supper Club. So, hmm. which, which was his, you know, continuing arma mater, so to speak. And then, uh, so, I mean, I, I grew up as a kid. Of course, I wasn't a normal kid in the neighborhood I grew up with because all the other kids I went to school with, you know, daddy got up and went to, to work in the morning and worked from eight to five and, and came home. And we were different. We were often talked about and rumored in the neighborhood as uh, the weirdos, you know, we were weird. We were different. <laughs> so, so your dad played for for big bands you, you you said i can imagine that if your dad was playing with big bands and then he's running this nightclub club that you would have just grown up crossing paths with crazy interesting entertainers and people like it, it, do well, you... i grew up in my house they brought in name entertainment also so um, I grew up in my living room, uh, with name, like with the Smothers brothers would come by cause they played there. There was, um, uh, K star who was a big time singer in the forties, fifties, even into the sixties. Um, she wrote a famous song called wheel of fortune, which was a astronomical hit back in the day um a lot of memories but i i grew up with many famed people that had been movie stars entertainers comedians singers through the years wow. jerry lewis i got to meet jerry lewis when i was a kid <laughs> and uh all these crazy people you know came through my house there was a band famous instrumental 
a group called the Four Freshmen. Oh yeah, and they they were good family friends. I grew up with them. They would often I'd wake up in the morning they'd be rehearsing in my living room, <laughs> and uh, unbelievable. <laughs> they were fantastic. But they brought in all this these name groups in the fifties and the sixties that had been stars or you know Frankie Lane. Uh, groups called the Diamonds. There, there were just infinitesimal amount of people because my father's group would also go out on the road and then come back. So when they weren't there performing, then the names uh, of show business, quote unquote, uh, would come in and uh, perform there. So with all of that enriched, you know, family life. Um, you know, it's easy to see. All right. You became a jazz drummer. You always were. Well, um, not just a jazz drummer. I did everything. I've been a rock drummer, punk drummer, reggae drummer, soul drummer, big band drummer, record studio musician. I've played all styles. I mean, I love to play jazz, quote unquote. And that's a whatever that word means. I love creative music. Uh, and, uh, did you ever come close or, or or headed away from all of that, like and almost you know miss the bus, or was it just dictated from early on, and and the course was just strong all the way through? My folks fought hard for me to get an academic career and become a dentist. You know. <laughs> okay. There we go. And, you know, be something, you know, like that. My father said, do as I say. You need to go to college and stay there till you're through because if they can make penicillin out of moldy cheese, they can make something good out of you too. But anyway, <laughs> to make a, long, make a long story short, um, <laughs> music was my inspiration. And the old line of a parent saying, do as I say, it's not necessary, you know, but don't do as I do. And that was a great example of, under which I grew up because the only thing I ever saw was uh, music and show business. Uh -huh. Right. So it kind of was an oxymoron for my father to dictate that consciousness to me which was and, uh, an ongoing battle as I grew up and I quit school and I was playing on the road when I was 15. I was playing in Las Vegas in show bands when I was 15 years old. So <laughs> I already, my, my course had already sort of been written and uh, they, they, I was, con when I played with the show bands in Vegas, Tahoe and toured, um, I, when I played with the bands, they kind of said, this kid's a, sort of a child prodigy. And I was no child prodigy, so to speak. It's just that I had a very early start and was surrounded by such great influences uh -huh. that right. uh, it, it perpetuated my ongoing volition to pursue music in my life. So... 
you know, with your father wanting you to become a dentist and then that not happening, <laughs> I, I would imagine there were some moments of, of tension. Did it eventually come back around in which, you know, he was glad that, that you had, you know, not gone down the dentist and he was able to really validate, like, you know, did, did those types of conversations take place? He had always wished that I had done both, of course. Mm. And, uh, because in my father's case, he said, musicians struggle and, uh, usually don't make much money, which didn't make sense to me as, as a kid, because he became a millionaire doing what he did. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, Yes, he wish I had uh, had gone on to college to do that. I am now called into to colleges. I've been called in many times as a visiting professor, mm -hmm. Professor Kevin Smith, you know, and right. and I go in and I've taught music history classes on a few occasions, and uh, I've also brought bands in to talk about music and. Um, the art of playing and the art of creative music jazz being one of the many included. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've given talks at CU Metro and so on and so forth in the past. So you were on the road at 15 and, and you've never not been a drummer. So what, <laughs> what, what did that look like? I mean, were there stages? I mean, you've basically been a part of, the music industry from the golden years of the eras of, of Americana to now. <laughs> so, uh, like Correct. you're a living history of all of that. Is it even possible to walk us through some of that? Walk through what? I, I'm not quite sure. Before I went out on the road at 15, um, I had my first band in grade school. Uh -huh. fifth grade. And also, I also was in the school band. So this was back in the day when elementary schools actually had a music program starting in the, let's see, third grade. I started in the, I did singing classes in first and second, but there were actually, I became a drummer in the school band in the third grade. Wow. At which time, in a couple of years, I put together a little rock band and uh, we played songs like Louie Louie and let's see, the monkey started to come out. So we were doing songs like Steppin' Stone, House of the Rising Sun. Um, <laughs> and we got busy at it and I, I promoted those bands and we got on playing for the USO shows wow. in Denver. So we played, we dressed up. You'd have to picture this was, this was the era. And we had little beagle beetle haircuts and we wore beetle boots <laughs> and we wore black pants and a white shirt. And we were into chains. So we would, we would go out and buy chain. We had, chain collars that we wore around our neck, chain belts. <laughs> and uh, 
And just for protection, we carried a chain in our back pocket. <laughs> unlike today, unlike today when kids carry AR-15s in their on their side, you know, whatever the hell's yeah. going on. Yeah. We didn't have the that problem back in those days. So my first bands were playing with the USO doing USO shows. And we also did school events. Um, at which moving into junior high, one of my first bands, uh, Cream had come, the band Cream had come out. And um, Jimi Hendrix, this was early on. And I, I met a good friend of mine who, Kim Stone, a great bass player, who went on to play with Spyro Gyra for 10 years and the Rippingtons, which was another fusion jazz band for 18 years. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know Kim played with the Rippingtons. Huh. That's interesting. Oh, 18 years. He's on, yeah. he's on all kind of videos on, uh, on YouTube with uh, the Rippingtons. Right. Wow. And I caught up with him years later when he was playing with the Rippingtons, I was playing the Aspen jazz festival and he was up there with the Rippingtons. And uh, I went to see him. And it was a, we kind of uh, had a reunion at that point. And uh, some years passed, he, he was living in LA at the time. And, and uh, when the earthquakes, I forget what year that was, uh, hit LA, he, he couldn't do LA anymore. He thought, the Sand Sand Andreas Fault was gonna swallow up California, so he moved <laughs> back to Denver. So you guys started the the Donnie Lama Trio after like, sometime after that, right? Once oh, many many decades later. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, a long time later. Wow. <laughs> but we yeah. we originally had a band and we played together when we were in junior high. And it, it was a very short-lived band. We, I think we did two, three jobs, and uh, we rehearsed, and uh, everybody went their different ways at that time. I'm going to piggyback on Ron a little bit, because really, like, you saw so many eras and, and lived and played through so many eras and, and had to adapt and led in many ways. Um you know, that walking through, you know, 60 years of music, um, you've, it, it, I'd, I'd love to hear how you make sense and of that pathway that you took, but also of how you saw music take place. Yes, I saw a great evolution of music. That is very true. If I dig into the memory wells here, I mean, I sat with a little tube radio am radio at the in my at the head of my bed and i would i would stay up all night listening to uh the few radio stations that played at the time so i was introduced you know i heard the beatles the very first time when they went across the air through the years the rolling stones and all those people i grew up also on the beach boys and uh, I was a member of the Beach Boy fan club. Yep. 
<laughs> and oh. monkey, monkey club and, the, and, and, and all those things, you know, I, so the evolution, I got to hear that uh, Denver's first black radio station, which was KDKO, which I listened to often. And I love staying up late at night because on my AM radio, I could get Chicago would filter in late at night and uh, some different areas. So wow. it was an advancement for my original crystal set. <laughs> Was there ever a moment where you felt like, what is happening to music? Uh, I always felt it was just an evolution. It was just an amazing time. Yeah. Um, especially in the in late six, the 60s, watching the advent of the Beatles and everything changed coming to, you know, Jimi Hendrix revolutionized my entire consciousness. Um, you know, Jefferson Airplane, all those bands of the 60s. And I also was taken out as a kid, and I, I got to go to San Francisco when I was, uh, I probably went to Haight-Ashbury when I was 11, the beginning of that. And I wonder what all the hell that was about, you know. <laughs> Only to find out in, in later years, you know, realized that I heard Allen Ginsberg and several great poets in Haight-Ashbury at that time uh, reading poetry in the square. You know, it was fantastic. Wow. Not to diverge from where you're, where, where, I don't know where to go, but it was an amazing time to see the evolution of music, the evolution of uh, all art form, not only in music, but uh, amazing, you know, times. Yeah as they are today. Well, so I want, I want to mention this last year, the famous El Chapultepec closed down in Denver. And, and for listeners who don't know, this is a, it was a staple jazz club. Uh, El Chapultepec was around for a long, long, long time. And then I'm still trying to make sense of, of its closing. And, and I wonder, I'm sure that you would have a better perspective on what, what does that mean to, to Denver and what does it mean to jazz in general? I mean, what is, can you talk a little bit about the legacy of El Chapultepec and what is Denver without it? Um, it's very sad. Um, for many musicians who have many who have gone on to international fame, plus uh, uh, you know, went, went there when, um, I have to, I refer to El Chapultepec as where I got my doctorate in, in, uh, music, mm. <laughs> so to speak, because all the, the major jazz names would come to do shows here, but they would also go down to El Chapultepec and play everybody from Wynton Marsalis going back to all the great, uh, big band jazz names, all these people would come through there and play there. Uh, Chet Baker. Wow. The list is just extravagant, but um, a man by the name of uh, uh, Jerry Krantz owned that and ran that for many, 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 many years. And he originally, as I remember, was from New York. He had been a 
a boxer hmm. and somehow moved and uh, got into the bar business. He also was a uh, numbers runner. So really? in the, in the betting. Yeah. So he ran a big business on betting and gambling and, and uh, very, very, very bizarre character and very grateful that he loved jazz so much that he kept it going till he passed. And then his daughter continued the legacy um, until about three years ago. And when COVID came and everything else, she said, I just can't do this anymore. And uh, she sold it. Right. So, but I mean, presidents came there. Clinton played saxophone at right. uh, El Chapultepec. Wow. I have pictures of him playing at El Chapultepec. So, so it and, gets uh, sold in the breaking out of COVID. It gets sold and somebody closes it. What, what, what do you mean? It gets sold it, but closes down. It closed down and was, I thought he owned the building, but he may not have owned the building, but sold the business. His daughter sold the business. And it's some young millennial type bar owner who uh, is making it into a sports bar. It's diagonal from uh, Colorado's Coors Field, which is the baseball field in Colorado. Right. Uh, a, a, a successful business of a very different nature. Yes, it was. I mean, the place sold Mexican food by most people. It was considered a very dangerous place to go in the early days because if you, by the time you got, went from downtown out to 20th and market, that was the warehouse district. And it was kind of like, Similar to what be would uh, would be considered in New York the Bowery wow. of those days, you know. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, you wanted to be protected to go down there, and you were uh, people were advised not to go down there. But all the major people would come into town, like you uh, two would come into town, and they would go to El Chapultepec because they heard that was the yeah mecca. Yeah. place to go you know yeah so bono was there he got thrown out by jerry Kreins because jerry Kreins, um he had four 17 year old girls in the car and uh jerry <laughs> said you bring in those 17 year old girls in my club and he picked <laughs> up a baseball bat and ran bono out <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Jerry had quite a reputation for you didn't want to mess with Jerry. <laughs> but if, if Jerry came to like you, uh, it was a good thing. It was a good thing that Jerry came to like you. So he's <laughs> an amazing guy but, uh, that he did what he did. He didn't play an instrument or anything else, but he just dearly loved mm. uh, jazz music. Mm. Wow. And made it a point to get there to know everybody and try to hire them and come up with enough money to have him people come and play in his little, you know, 50 seat dive bar, which wow. had about six booths and a, and a bar. Yeah. And, and a little pool table in the other room. 
a little pool table in the other room and a little <laughs> place where you'd order food. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it was all, it was ca- cash only. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cash mm-hmm. only. It was great. And there are some older businesses in Denver that uh, I I go by. And they just said, we've always been cash only. If you don't have the cash, get out of here. Well, you know, we don't use those funny cards. Thank you. And I think you were telling me that um, you saw Hendrix's last show at the Denver Coliseum. Was that? um... Yes, I did. No, it was not Hendrix's last show. It was the experiences, Jimi Hendrix and the experience. It was the last show that Noel Redding, who was the bass player of Jimi Hendrix band, that was his last gig. He decided uh, not to play with Hendrix anymore. And he couldn't do it. And he wanted to go off and do his own thing. Um, and that show actually is available in on audio on Facebook, 1969 Denver Pop and jazz no pop pop fest just was built as denver's and it was denver's only pop festival it was three days long i was there all three days that would have made me 14 at the time (laughs) and i went and saw the original mothers of invention big mama (laughs) thornton bands like uh tommy bolin i got to see tommy bolin great guitarist who played with Zephyr and then who went on to do many other things. Um, it was a three day festival with a lot of tear gas and a lot <laughs> of gate crashing. And it's, that was located down where in power field is where the, just the wonderful Broncos play uh-huh. all the time, you know, right. that, that winning team, man, you know, <laughs> And uh, it was called Mile High Stadium at the time, and they uh, they made the the football stadium into uh, a concert, and uh, there was lots of tear gas. I got tear gassed and all kind of things. But uh, Hendrix closed the show of the three days. That's the only time I was able to uh, get to see Hendrix, and it was fantastic. And quite a story because people were unruly. And at the end of the concert, they threw them all in a, in a U-Haul van um, and, and drove them off the, the, the uh, football field and people (laughs) had broken through the gates and they were trying to get to Hendrix and, and Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding and a couple other friends of mine were in the truck, the, Billy Rich, who plays with uh, Taj Mahal, and uh, a bunch of them were in the van, and the whole top caved in, and they all thought they were going to die. That's in, many, that's in a bunch of classic books. A guy named <laughs> Henderson wrote a book on uh, called "Excuse Me While I Kiss the Sky," and he he went back and tracked Hendrix and wrote stories in his book. And that story is recounted in that book. Um, <laughs> and I was grateful to, to have been there and been able to, to witness that and watch that. And, and there's a little hotel that they put 
Hendrix and the experience in, which is actually still there. It's not a hotel anymore, but it's a little round cylindric. Uh... Yeah. Was that the red lion? What, what was that? Yes. yes yeah. It was. It was. And now it, and then and it now it's, I think something. dorms. It's dorms for the, it's for probably the cars. Dorms, you know. Yeah. Right. Ah, right. Oh, yeah. That was like an iconic building there, right next to the stadium. It was, it was, but uh, it was fantastic to see the original mothers of invention there. Jimmy Carl Black, and they all came out in pajamas, <laughs> wearing, wearing pajamas, and and uh, Zappa, of course, was the maestro of the century, and he came out. And he will go down as one of the greatest prolific songwriters of the last century. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. That's incredible. Um, so it was fantastic to see that band at that time. And uh, I lost a lot of brain cells during those three days, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> as did most anyone there. If not for the tear gas for everything else, right? Right. Yeah, the famous local band of the time was Zephyr and Tommy Bullen was playing with them. And as the rioters, gate crashers crashed, they would do this slow down, speed up thing. And they would, they, you know, they would go from a frenzy to boom, boom, boom. And they gradually speed that up. And as they sped, as the band sped up, the rioters sped up. And then when they <laughs> very fast volume, the gates came down. And and uh, Denver police weren't too happy about that at the time. Yeah, I bet. Oh, wow. So, you know, when you, you talked about going on tour, you know, when you were 15, playing Vegas and stuff like that. Other than that, were you mostly through your drumming career, have you mostly stuck to Denver or were there times when, when you didn't call Denver your home? I mean, what, what? No, I was on the road for many years, um, touring with bands, uh, up and down the West coast, up to Vancouver, Canada, to Arizona, uh, worked a lot in Lake Tahoe. There were just circuits back in those days, you had agents and they would book you on the road and they would generally would book you not on a nightly performance basis, but on a weekly basis to maybe three weeks. You would get booked in a place for three weeks in a row and you would work five nights a week, two or three shows a night. Wow. And, uh, and the agents actually booked you and they booked you as to the caliber of your success rate. So you could demand the money. Uh, the leaders I worked for uh, had me on a salaried payroll. So I made uh, 250 a week, 275 a week. And I got paid gas to, to drive to each of the places and rooms were paid for. So while on the road, we would stay in hotel rooms and that was paid for in, in my first years doing that with, uh, by the band leader. Wow. So 
and he'd also worked very hard to try to get get us a, a meal or two a day through the hotel. So it would, you know, you could actually, in those days, travel on the road and you could make money. And that was a very interesting point in time. You could travel, make money, and save your money, which is what I did so that I could save up and buy more records. And and when I would go through San Francisco, um, I could go hang out. I was one of the first persons, I can say it now, I, I stood in Berkeley, California, when they opened the first Tower Records. Wow. And we protested and we threw bricks through the window at Tower Records because the threat was it would put all the small record stores out of business. And it was the beginning of corporate mayhem, which uh, prevails to this very moment. <laughs> yeah. What 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 year? What year are you talking about? Um I was in Berkeley in 1971, 70, 71. When, when Tower Records first opened, it was in the early 70s then. Yeah, 1970. And you guys could smell like, man, this is the end of all the local small record places. This is oh, it. it was the end of the world, man, you know. Vietnam War was still... What in the end of the throws, you had the Berkeley riots, um, which today by comparison seemed very small and insignificant at that time. Um, that was a huge thing, very huge. So you were you were saying like, man, back then you could you can make money on the road. What what was the what was the turning point? Um, what did that look like? Did you see it coming? Did it come all of a sudden? what what brought it on talk about that a little bit when i was on the bay i did come back to denver in 73 1973 at which point uh a lot of the bands that i could have gone out with they didn't pay that well they didn't pay your room they didn't pay your gas and that whole climate already was greatly changing there weren't touring bands on the road. I mean, it's a lot for people to get because, you know, there was no internet. And I toured in towns through Iowa, Nebraska, right. Missouri. In these places, they had no internet. And they had to order records through the mail. And I got to play and meet a lot of great musicians who, you know, they were living in farmland, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, it's a rich history and it was very beautiful. And when you came, when the band came to the town, um, we were treated, you know, we weren't, no, we were not major names or anything. These people were so star for entertainment and music. And when we came into town, these people would take us to, into their homes and wine us and dine us and uh, pick us up for lunch. And some of these places I went to, 
you know, I would go to like Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I would go to the gas station and they said, hey, we saw your show the other night. You guys are great. I said, well, thank you very much. And I'd fill up my car with gas and no, they filled it up. I forgot. You couldn't, there wasn't self-serve back in those days. So they, they would fill up the tank and I would go in and buy a couple of wanting to buy groceries. And when it came time for me to check out, I said, what do I owe you? And they said, Oh, you don't owe us a thing. We, we just love you in the band and we're coming to see you tomorrow night. And, and, (laughs) and I would walk out of there having a full tank of gas and, uh, six pack of Pepsi and, you know, some Cheetos and other stuff. And, you know, (laughs) and this often happened in the, in the smaller towns, this was very true. And it, uh, they treated you like, you know, dignity, royalty. Right. That was a very beautiful time um, to be out there. And most of those people I worked with are gone several of which I've tried to contact and uh, found out through uh, certain sources and different truth finders and all these things that are out there now that uh, so-and-so, you know, had moved on, but they were the people I worked for were my elders at the time, you know? Yeah. So I spent many years working with elders and uh, it's the elders that picked me up by the bootstrap and carried me along. And I'm eternally ever grateful to these people. Um, just amazing. And, and it's so different these days because many of my colleagues that uh, in the music industry that I've worked with are now professors at colleges and everything. And they have their own bands that are fantastic. And they get they occasionally work at a club. And none of their students ever even come to see them. They could care less. They have no respect for what would be for them. So I feel we have a a great demise and a miss of history being carried on Mm. and what that means and how important it is to honor your elders that came before you in whatever it is that you do, whether it's music, art, you know, the list is infinitesimal. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of what we talk about, um, you know, on the podcast and life in general um, with Ron, you know, has so much to do with that elder, that mentor figure and how crucial it is. And you speak of it, as it came so naturally in the way that it, that it should. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I'm curious to know a little bit more about that dynamic because so much of what we've talked about um, has been music related, but an elder would have to encompass far more than some musical instruction or, you know, on how to make it in the business like, like talk a little bit more, first of all, just, just your choice of words. Like who, who were these guys to you? They were the ones I looked up to, you know, I mean, they were the ones that had been there. Um, I worked with a, a lot of great players who 
I spent many years with a, a man by the name of uh, Billy Tolls, who I'm getting ready to put up some YouTubes of him on him because there's nothing up of him. He, he grew up playing with Lionel Hampton. Uh, he and Quincy Jones were best friends. I got to meet Quincy Jones through Billy many moons ago. But to, to really round that off, not, I'm, I'm, it's not about, you know, it's the, it's about story. And uh, as a originative, you know, it's about story. And it's, you know, there's fable stories and there's all kinds of stories, but there's just the true history line. And I studied many years uh, going to Martin Prechtel School in New Mexico, of which Ron and I went to his writing class on a couple occasions. But then he started a school, and Martin even writes about it in his book uh, after. I don't know if the people on these podcasts know much of the history of Martin Brechtel or who he even is. Help me out, Ron. Or... More or less. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some will okay. know more. I think it's always good to, because you'll, you'll share from your perspective. So anybody who, who is familiar won't be familiar with how you share. If there's any overlap, it's worth going into, you know, so just share away, man. A real fast overlap of uh, Martin Prechtel uh, was born in New Mexico, was raised in, on a reservation. His mother was an English teacher. Uh, he had a series of dreams. This is real short. Had a series of dreams which led him away, and he went into Mexico and traveled through Mexico, at which time he ended up in Guatemala. And... When he got there, his teacher greeted him and said, where have you been? I sent for you years ago. We need <laughs> to get to work. And he immediately put Martin to work, and, and he that was his elder and teacher, and he became a shaman of the village and an elder. Martin, also a great artist, um, had done many things, but he became a healer and a shaman in Atitlan in Guatemala, which is a volcanic district. And he spent many years there. And then when the, uh, the rebels came in, the Contra came in, um, there was a price put on his head. They came and destroyed his village, essentially, and his people of the indigenous teachings and the lineage of which he had been taught and carried. And he escaped and brought his family, which took a number of years to get his family here uh, into the United States. And the story goes on. Uh, I'm, I, I, I retrogress this to what you're talking about, about elders, because Martin often cites, it's, and he cited it in a couple of books where he mentioned when he left Guatemala, and he came, he went back to Guatemala to visit kind of incognito, as I understand. And uh, he was teaching kids when he went back to Guatemala, the history of their people. Right, right. Here's this white guy and, and he's teaching them and he says, oh, we're driving on this road. Do you know this is the road? Right. 
where your forefathers traveled and all this. And there's a particular story where they got to a certain place in the road and Martin didn't, the road had been rebuilt. And he says, I don't know where I am. What's this about? And the kids who were driving him said, oh, there was an earthquake and, and, and the rocks rolled down and knocked that part of the highway out and they rebuilt it. And Martin says, I'm grateful to you. You're teaching me a part of the story of where I lived. And I'm teaching you the other part of the story where you grew up. Right. And the beauty of that historical account was very great with, you know, with Martin and they get great beauty. Well, joy, a joy that will last forever. Can I say? So, you know, when, when you first come across Bracktail, um, what was going on and what drew you in and, and what kept you, you know, because, you know, I think about it a lot in that way. Like, you know, when you were talking about giving that tape of grief and praise to Ron, it, it was a little different when Ron um, had me listen to grief and praise for the first time, which, you know, was down in Esparza, Costa Rica. And um, right. I, I, I definitely was at a place where I would say I was in a, like I grew up in the Atacama desert and spiritually I had moved into a desert of sorts and very much like, you know, one of his latest books that he finally penned, but, you know, had it in his heart very early on, um, the smell of rain on dust, uh, yeah. you know, coming across grief and praise and, you know, this is my late twenties when I've kind of said spirituality is important to me, but it's not going to be what it was for my parents or what was passed down to me, it has to have some sort of new form. Um, but that new form is, has ancestral roots. I, I couldn't articulate any of that at that point, but listening, you know, to just the, just a concept of there are languages in this world in which grief and praise is actually one and of the same conceptually that is so radically different from a judeo-christian you know framework that i was familiar with in which good is the opposite of evil um you know where everything is in dualities that was the first time that i was like wow like okay there's something else and, mm -hmm. and i want to keep listening and that kind of drew me in that, that what, what, what is it for you when, when you came across Brechtel? Uh, my wife had been taken to a writing workshop uh, with Martine and she went with the girlfriend only to come back and tell me all about Martine and all that, at which time I went with her the next time. Um, that was my introduction to Martine but it was an evolution in spirituality for me and that, you know, I had been raised the Methodist and the Southern Baptist, uh, you know, Bible study kid. Uh, I became a Buddhist at 11 with Lotus land Buddhism or Nichiren Shoshu Buddhism. And I was reading books by Alan Watts, uh, many great spiritual philosophers and stuff. Alan Watts, when I, 
He wrote a book called This Is It. And I took it when I was seventh grade and I, I grabbed that book off the shelf and I fell in love with that there is something, you know, the world's a much bigger place than what had been painted to me spiritually, you know. Right, right. So that led me and I became, I practiced Buddhism with them for, oh, a couple of years, two, three years. And then I got into Hinduism and I studied, uh, came into transcendental meditation on the early seventies. And I took all the classes and, um, I fell short of giving the Maharishi $3,000 so I could get the golden mantras <laughs> so I could go out and teach meditation. Oh man. And I also had a big thing through the years of, uh, one-upmanship in anything, first of all, but one-upmanship in spirituality. It's kind of like, my God's better than your God, my, you know, all that kind of, you know, I didn't want right. to, I didn't want to, I didn't do, and I knew there was greater dimensions out there, you know? Right. And after reading um, Alan Watts, and I also had a friend uh, whose father, he wasn't a blood uncle, but uh, call him, his name was, he was uncle Fred to me and his son was in the original, um, Harvard LSD experiments with, uh, Richard Albert, who later became Ram Das and, uh, Timothy Leary. Oh. And he was my introduction to the world of, uh, Rick Chapman was his name. Uh, he became, he became, he ran the Mayor Baba Foundation in Berkeley. I got to visit him back when I was on the road. And when my father was passing, I I did call him. I found him and called him up. We had a conversation, but Rick would come over to the house and tell my parents about taking this little pink pill made by Sandoz. And... Uh, <laughs> That was the, 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 you know, he would tell the stories of sitting with Ram Das and oh, all these people and uh, dropping acid and what they had discovered, you know, and right. how this would, you know, could be the evolutionary change of, you know, God in a pill and, and, and the savior of mankind, you know, at the time. Uh -huh. And I was fascinated by it. I was, I think I was 10. I take it back. I think I was 10 then. <laughs> I'm glad you made I that. I heard these stories. I heard these stories and I said, I can't wait till I can find one of these little pills. So <laughs> the little pill didn't come around to me till I was uh, 13 or 14, 13. Wow. So I got to experience the original tablets that came from the Sandoz laboratories of Switzerland um, that were produced before it became a felony to make, possess, use any damn thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my original history in that drug dimension 
if you want to call it that, or chemical alterations. You know, now it's come around. You know, they're legalizing psilocybin. And... Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that a little bit. I, I do want to I know. I didn't mean to skip into that, you know. But that's, you know, I do. Well, well I, I still want to understand a little bit more. Maybe it was just like this smooth transition. I, I think you framed really well you know, the necessary, well, maybe not necessary, but, but it, your, your background before Prechtel, um, you know, qualified you in, in ways, it's not the only way, but, but for what came when you did come across, you know, what he was saying and what he was writing about and what you were able to engage with in the workshops. Um, but at the same time with that richness, there's it, it hints at something that was maybe kind of missing or bugging you, you know, in that that eternal search, right? And I wonder what that was that when you come across Prechtel and his work, you're like, oh man, see that part of it all I didn't have in the Buddhism, Hinduism, and the Watts and right. so on and so forth. What was that? Um. In the late 80s, um, I was studying indigenous teachings of the Native Americans, and I proceeded to practice with the uh, Lakota, uh, well, for the last 25-plus years. And I was led into uh, just a whole new piece and, and reverence for the earth, reverence for, um, you know, Native ways and different things like that that were going on. And um, I knew at an early age, I, I mean, I got kicked out of school because in grade school, because, you know, they said, who discovered America? And it's amazing the weave that lays over all this. But, you know, I mean, at that time they said, you know, who discovered America? And the answer was by the uh, curriculum, you know, of course, Columbus. And I said, no, what do you mean Columbus discovered America? Excuse me? Right. You know, and when I was in school at that time, they said, they I said, the Indians were here for years. And then if you want to really trace back, there was Leif Erikson with the Vikings supposedly came to a, this quote unquote discovered America. And, um, <laughs> They said, no, uh, the Native Americans were savages, they told me, yeah. Yeah. who lived here. So the first real, quote unquote, human being that discovered America was Columbus. So I was promptly ushered to the principal's office. That's where I got my first taste of politics. <laughs> wow. Wow. So well, so you had gotten it from the church when that guy pulled you over on the side of the road and, and kind of tapped your chest and told you not to question God. And then you were getting it a few years later by the establishment saying not to question the educational system or the politics of how we talk about our our beginning. Uh-huh. Right. Well, that would make a rock and roller out of you. come on (laughs) pay homage man (laughs) 
Uh, the stories that, you know, I mean, I had to, I came up in, and when I was in junior high, I learned, I really learned more about politics because I was brought in front of the board of the, uh, there were a number of us that were brought in front of the board for Jefferson County. And uh, we were kind of tried as to whether they allow us to stay in school. And at that time, another political aspect of that was Time Magazine had come out and everybody read Time at that time. And uh, <laughs> that was the big thing. And Denver, Colorado, and particular my, my school was cited for making great strides in the new America. And this school was a modern school beyond any school that had happened. Um, this school had the one of the very first computers, which took took up about four rooms and a flip phone did 10 times more than that entire room could do. But it, it printed up our schedules and we were put into instead of eight or not, however many periods a day, we were put into a modular system of 18. What is it? What is a mod 18 and a half minutes run? We talked about this in the past. I don't know. So the schedule, some days the schedule to make it short, long story short was like, I didn't have to show up to school till 11 in the morning. Because the computer messed up everything. You'd go to math <laughs> class for 18 minutes, and about the time they finished roll call, the bell would go off again, and you were off to study hall. <laughs> and it was a complete, complete failure. But to make a long story short, Time Magazine had cited that this 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 schooling system was really, you know. It was the cat's meow. It was like, you know, if you're moving to America and you live in America, you might want to move to Denver, Colorado and live in Jefferson County and go to this school. Oh, man. Well, at the same time, they had brought us a bunch of us rebel junior high kids up against the system. At which point we had to fight our way to stay in school. And then I realized the administration thought it was more important to let us come back and go to school than to deal with the problem of which was, had been created there, hmm. which at that time was long hair, drugs, and that whole thing was going on it was the big explosion at that time right. and they i learned the politics of we'll just look the other way we we slap you on the back of the wrist now you go back and be a good boy and that's <laughs> what we did well and now getting back to what you were talking about the reopening of so many things you've you lived through a prohibition of sorts of all of the the that which would take you to a different consciousness and 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 now you're seeing the opening up of that again talk a little bit about like 
<laughs> you must have been like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so much time and energy into like you know dampering this whole thing and now now look now, like what's your perspective on all that mm, i don't I, I don't know quite how to pin your question say well, it again. Well, let, let's let's just take like marijuana for example right like you you go through a period in which it's you know prohibited and and, and you're chased and you're locked up and then you live through all of that and then now you see an openness towards it like do you just like roll with it or or are there think or they're like are you caught by surprise by it are you baffled are you like did you see it coming like uh how do you make sense of a society that is so restrictive and yet or is it you know, like when it opens up, is this like, man, we, we finally broke through and, and power to the people like, how? because uh, you got to live through the whole thing. There's a lot of things that have moved forward and they're very beautiful. I mean, I had friends that went to prison for a joint for three years. Right. right. You know, and now I can walk out my front door. I live uh, two blocks off a major artery in Denver. And uh, I can go buy a joint. I can buy hash. I can buy anything I want, you know? And uh, it's amazing to see that evolution and, and all that change. And, you know, we're, we're at the same time. I think a lot of things are, are retrogressing, you know, there's things that have jumped ahead and there's things that have, are seemingly going backwards, you know? Well, that, that's the interesting thing, because when you talk about the nature of the interest of people, say in music in particular, um, when you are coming of age mm-hmm. and, and you compare it to, um, you know, when you say that you can think back on and just being impressed that you got a chance to see Allen Ginsberg in San Francisco. I took a class with him at Naropa. I mean, I help organize his poetry. Yeah. But that, so I had another professor actually at Naropa that, that talked about um, how when, when he was coming of age, that, that the cool thing to do would be to skip school and go down to the local bookstore when, when a new, when a poet was coming out with a new chat book or a new book of poetry, because you wanted to be mm-hmm. there. And I'm like, wild. That seems so radical to compare to, you know, the, if the, if the recreation of your generation was to skip school so that you could go pick up the latest book of poetry, that's just a very different era and a a different consciousness of a different social consciousness in general compared to now where like you know kids are skipping class to go to carl's jr or burger king right Right. there's so much more substance in the era that you were emerging from and now you know you can smoke a joint on the street but it's just like who's skipping class to go read poetry the new poet, the new poetry that's coming. Like it wasn't happening when I was in high school, <laughs> like, and, and it's certainly not happening today. 
so we have in in many ways um de-evolved over the last you know 30 40 years a quick synopsis right there of of, of like say coffee shop where i met you right um right. i went to the first coffee shops when it was considered the beat coffee shops the beat era and you would go to the original muddy's uh which was a coffee shop in denver for many many years right the original one was up in uh um off of 15th and uh platte there's a four corner area and up there and a friend of mine opened that it was instrumental in opening that and running that and when you would go in there it was beat poets and chess players. Right. And you get your espresso or your cappuccino and go sit down. They had a little theater in a room next door to it. And uh, it was poetry readings. And what have we evolved to? Starbucks? I mean, God yeah. save the queen. You know what I mean? And it's, 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 it's mind-boggling to me, but I don't get mine. It's just... Sometimes it's go like, where did that go? Where did that go? When did that happen? Yeah. I went just tonight. I was telling stories and a friend of mine who was a bass player and I worked with him off and on the last 50 years. He's now in a dementia ward memory lock unit. And I went to visit him this evening. Wow. And uh, we were telling stories and, and wow. it all came back to me and just the amount of uh, history and lineage we shared together over all those, all these years, you know, and it was really beautiful and it was really sad to visit with him and I'll be back to see him soon because uh, I just didn't know what had happened with him and uh I just called him up and found him today and went back and it brought back a flood of uh, history and memory. That's quite beautiful and was uh, quite profound, prolific, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, like a coffee shop. I mean, I, I remember going down to Paris on the plat and muddies when I was in high school and, and, mm-hmm those are the type of places that you might be able to stumble up across someone who could be an elder. Uh, you know, if you spent enough time there and you started to get to know uh, the people that were there. And I just wonder, like, like the generations today, like where, where would they even come across elders? <laughs> like, where does that exist? They're not dialing people up on zoom or, you know, are they following elders on fit on Instagram or, you know, and, and how would that work? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would take the means of say communication, say with uh, computers and these kids are going to music school and, you know, they can build computers. They know how to do all these things, but in what they're doing, learning music, they don't even know who to look for on YouTube. I have to, you know, some of them come to me as students and, and, and I just go, you haven't heard of this person or that person. And I give them a list of names to look up. I said, do they do your history on this? You know, mm. you know, uh, they just, you know, they know how to, they, they, they know how to run AI, but they don't know what to look for in AI. You know? uh, 
it's a it's a really really interesting thing that I think is still being articulated in that you know we lived uh, through this transition of having the questions and having the foundation so that as the internet became a thing, it did facilitate a lot of the the research. But then what kind of caught everyone by surprise was the next generation that did not know what it was like to go into a library and have to pull book after book after book (laughs) off the shelves and begin to leaf through to find information and begin to piece through these major puzzles. It's almost like as if we were equipped you know, to, to make a puzzle of 5,000 pieces and the internet came around. And so we said, okay, wow, well, I'll put together 50,000, but for the newer generation, um, they were introduced to a table that had a million pieces and they had never put together their a hundred piece puzzle. And what, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? I don't know. Yeah. I know nothing. I have no answers, you know, I mean, in that direction, except when I encounter people and I meet a lot of them and, and, um, I have a local coffee shop. I go to once a day, a few blocks from me. And I know everybody that's worked there and I've been going to this place for six years and I get to know, you know, they're teaching me many things and I'm at the same time, trying to redirect their history, you know, you know, they were telling me about this great kid who does computer music. And are you going to go see a show? He's going to be here in town. You want to go see him? You want to go see him? And I said, what does he play? And he said, well, he doesn't play anything. He, he, he makes computer music. <laughs> and he gets hired to go to Brazil and do a, a computerized music show with lights and comes home with several thousand dollars in his pocket and he can't play a note to save his life, you know? Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. That's it's all an idea. It's not a, it's not a actualization, you know? Oh, you, you, you play computer. That's great. Great. Uh, you know, what can I say? Yeah. It's, it's completely changed really the nature of music um mm-hmm. and i mean and, and you've had you've watched this from the introduction of say drum machines and and synthesizers early on and progressing to the point of today where anyone with a laptop or even a device now can throw together you know a whole piece of music but the process is so artificial and and is so low stakes because you know it's when you have to practice every day or four to four to eight hours a day to get good at a craft and that puts you at a different you know echelon of skill set than other people you're appreciated differently you know within that realm but now the stakes are really low because anyone who you you don't have to know anything about music you don't have to have any real skill or craft uh, to right. be able to uh, 
throw some stuff together and it mm-hmm. sounds more or less, you know, in the vein of what people are used to listening to for the last, you know, from a pop circuit perspective from right. for the last however many years. And so right. by its nature, while, while it might sound, you know, the production quality may sound on par with other things that they're hearing, there is a definite cheapening of the entire process and, and the art of music when you have no stake in what's actually being produced. And, you know, people can be professional, you know, electronic DJs or what or whatnot, and they don't really have to know anything about the history of music. They don't have to know where, where anything came from. They don't have to know. They don't have to ask those questions that um, that they don't even know how to ask. They don't even know what to ask. Right. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. Right. They truly don't. You know, in many cases, there are exceptions. I'm. Uh, you know. I mean, no doubt about it. Well, gentlemen, I think this is a good place to wrap it up for the evening. Kevin, I want to thank you for lending your insights and your time to our conversation tonight. This was a joy. Thank you. Delightful. So when do we do part two? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. exactly what I would That's what we're going to go for. The three of us were a great pleasure to me. So yeah. great joy. You know, if if anything, well, well, we'll get to that when we do, but so much of this is like laying down like the introductory, like where things are kind of at. And then, you know, like when we have you back, like we can maybe pinpoint two or three areas to really go deep in on. Um, but I think it's important. You got a quick overview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, you talked earlier about elders and and Ron and I have always talked as we've asked ourselves in the earlier years, well, who are, you know, when we are getting to know each other, you know, who's your elder? Uh, Kevin was, is at the top of my list for my elders. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, even in our small brief encounters, um, and this is what we might need to get into at the next cast, but, you know, you, you touched at the beginning of the whole show, um, your decision to take care of your dad. And, uh, you know, you don't know, but so much of my return to the States, you know, was informed by elders in my life. You know, I, I, I often talk about Stephen Jenkinson that penned a whole book on the whole thing, you know, die wise, but I never knew him. I didn't know you. And I knew you not only as Kevin, but as Urshanabi, the one that cares and tends for the dying and I knew that I don't know the nuance. We've never talked about it. And I look forward to having you back and having a conversation about what it's like to say, hey, I'm going to put all that touring or whatever it is that I need to put on hold. And the priority right now is going to be dad. And I want you to know that in my return, so often I thought without knowing much of the story, but Kevin did that. I, I need to do that. Um, so, you know, I look forward to that conversation, but I also want your return. I thought she'd be back here by now, my friend. (laughs) As John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans. (laughs) Very powerful old statement, but yeah, there you go. 
thank you both for your time. Uh, thank all of our listeners for your time and uh, sticking with us. This is the Originated Podcast. I am Ron Green, and this is Glue Scabby, a.k.a. Carl Evans, and our special guest, Mr. Kevin Smith. Thank you all, and have a good evening. Good night. Thank you. Good night.